Are you passionate about health and nutrition? Then check out the Nutrition Academy. They offer the most comprehensive, innovative, and transparent health and nutrition educational resource on the planet. They strive to separate health misinformation from reality. They give their students the resources and skill sets to think critically about what they read and learn. So you can use the power of research to make better decisions for yourself, your family, and the people you serve. The Nutrition Academy have kindly offered all listeners a discount for this course. So you are able to try it out for yourself with a saving of $50. Just use the code TNN50 at thenutrition.academy or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, you will learn if LCHF is appropriate for females. We discuss why it is so important to define terms including LCHF, fasting and fasted training and specific considerations with females in all three of these areas. We explore the differences in the follicular and luteal phases of the menstrual cycle and how you might manipulate your nutrition and or training schedule to optimize your hormones, recovery and ongoing performance. What's up, Trainiacs? This is Triathlon Taryn. And this is No Triathlon Kim, also known as NTK. In my 20s, I was 215 pounds and I was unhappy working the desk job I was at. Now I'm a 941 Ironman athlete who, with your much appreciated attention, gets to make a living in the sport that I love. Through this podcast and our ever popular YouTube channel, we bring you triathlon stories, science and training from amazing people around the world to help you get to your start lines confident and your finish lines strong. And as the resident non-triathlete, I try to keep this show fun and accessible for everybody. Let's do it. Today's podcast is brought to you by (laughs) TeamTrainiac.com. 
And I'm going to say that so dramatically because it is hands down the best triathlon training platform that we have ever created. <laughs> good, good save. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So teamtrainiac.com, it is the online training program that is currently a web app. Later this year, I promise all Trainiac athletes that there is going to be an app app on your phone coming out. We're just doing the wireframes and planning out how that's going to happen. And what you can get on teamtrainiac.com is your full year of triathlon training, whether you can fit in four workouts a week or 14 workouts a week, whether you're doing a sprint triathlon or an Ironman triathlon, whether you can only work out on the weekend or you have shift work or anything like that. All of this is customized based on just about 60 seconds of inputting the information that you want to plan out. And then your plan is created for you automatically with a workout every single day that you want to work out and video guidance and audio guidance on how and why to train that way. And, and if you are a raw rookie, a first timer uh, doing a sprint or a first timer doing a, an Ironman distance race or someone who's been doing it for a few years, everything in between Regardless of what your goals are, there's something for everybody. There's something for everybody. One of those things <laughs> is actually freebies. If you are a first timer, you might be overwhelmed by a lot of the costs that have to come up with bikes and shoes and helmets and wheels and race entries and all the travel gear that we need. It gets expensive. All of our partners, our sponsors throughout the year are offering Team Trainiac athletes freebies. So there's a little benefit to you. And so. always discounts. There's always discounts on the website for our athletes as well. So if you are interested in that, you can go check out a 14-day free trial at teamtrainiac.com. Today's guest is my nutritionist, the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. We've had her on the podcast before. Dan Plews takes care of my coaching. He also takes care of just manipulating what days and when I have carbs. But what I was finding over the course of 2019 is that I was actually gaining weight on a lower carb approach and I was constantly hungry. So there's definitely something that we were missing. I reached out to Steph Lowe, who is a nutritionist based out of Australia, and she's been working with me on saying, all right, yeah, here are the macronutrients that you need to be successful as per Dan's instructions, but what are the exact foods? What are the foods that you need? Is it potatoes? Is it sweet potatoes? Is it overnight oats? Is it broccoli? What is it and what are the supplements that you can be taking? As we were going through all of that and I've been documenting my journey about lower carb, we've had many, many messages from women saying that it's very different for females. And so today, and we'll preface this for any male triathletes, listen to this too, because you're going to learn something. This isn't just for women. Especially male triathlete coaches should yes, know this. absolutely. Male triathlete coaches. But male triathletes, maybe if you've got a woman in your life, maybe you're going to want to learn some things here today because uh, Steph breaks things down in such an easy to understand way. But we are talking about eating for women who are training and whether that's low carb fasting, calories, what have you. We kind of cover the whole gamut here. Um, and it's super interesting because women and men aren't the same. I know we know that, but especially um, when we're talking about nutrition for triathletes, for endurance athletes, there's some pretty significant differences and um, ways to gauge that men cannot gauge 
And uh, yeah, just fascinating. Steph is absolutely brilliant, but makes things so simple and easy to understand. If after listening to this podcast, or maybe you've seen some of the stuff that we've done with Steph already, you're interested in just learning more about her approach to nutrition planning, and even maybe thinking about consulting with her, if you go to triathlonterran.com forward slash Steph, S-T-E-P-H, there's a free starter pack that explains how she's gone about her approach with me. And then you can also get a discount on working with her directly. So triathlonterran.com forward slash Steph, just put in your email address and you can start customizing your own approach to this. And uh, thanks, Steph. Always a pleasure to talk with you. So let's start off here, Steph, with the elephant in the room that I think we have to address. As I started going LCHF and no matter how many times in YouTube videos, I would say just flat out for females, it's a little different and you should look into how this is going to work and be a little bit more careful. There are a lot of female triathletes who have read Stacey Sims, who is very much on the other side of things and basically saying that low carb and fasting and all these things that I'm talking about and and you're a proponent of as a female is just outright dangerous for women. Can we just start this podcast here head on with addressing your beliefs and what you found on that? Mm. Yeah, look, I think we do have to acknowledge that the majority of the research up to this point in time has been done on like college age men, yeah, because it's largely a funding issue and usually women are excluded from a study because of the influence of their hormones and how that can would influence the data. So I respect Stacey's work to no end and I think we have to, yeah, really acknowledge that we can't apply literature or studies on men to women so that we don't want to do that but I also think that everyone is really unique that it's more nuanced again than just saying all women need to eat high carb or all women shouldn't um, do any fasted training like to me that's taking things a little bit to the other end of the spectrum and I say this all the time but it's about finding that middle ground and also experimenting to what works for you because you and I, Taryn, aren't talking about keto or 25 grams of carbs a day or 50 grams of carbs a day. The acronym that I like the best when we look at LCHF actually is lower carbohydrate healthy fat. So that lower word is really important when we look at what the comparison is. So it's lower than the food pyramid. You know, so so it's lower than 400 or 600 grams of carbs a day. Like that's a good thing, right, because of what we've been told in the Western world to eat in terms of that food pyramid that has been so carbohydrate heavy for so long. So we have to break down the acronym and look at the difference between what we're actually uncovering. You know, we're not talking about keto. Um, and furthermore, the re- the specific macronutrients or ratios that we look at for males and females are different within LCHF. So we can unpack that as well. Have you seen any detrimental side effects from female athletes that start going lower carb? 
So I think that for female athletes, our menstrual cycle is our monthly report card. So the answer to your question is yes. If someone goes too low carb for them, probably also if they're doing too much high intensity training for them, they're not periodizing their training um, and and they lose their menstrual cycle, then of course what they're doing is not working. So it's possible, but a lot of it then, you know, that shouldn't mean that LCHF doesn't work. It means the version that you've started with wasn't quite right and it's time to either, you know, take a deeper dive to educate yourself or get some personalised support to, you know, what nuances, what changes will help optimise that um, that whole foods approach for you. So let's talk numbers then because, of course, people are going to say, all right, then what is too low? So what, I mean, what mm-hmm. is the range that we would be looking at that would be, and I, again, realizing that it's going to be different for every single woman and person, um, but what what's the range we're looking at that typically ends up being a decent, healthy range that still allows you to be lower carb, but maintain the health of the menstrual cycle? Yeah, for sure. So if we look at rough calories to start, let's use some numbers that um, a female athlete might be having, say on a rest day, 1,700 calories. 20% of that would give us... um, Let me get my my mass happening here. 20% of that would be 340 calories. Yep, if we divide that by four, it's about 85 grams of carbohydrates per day. So that would be an example of what our rest day carbohydrate requirements would be. So then if we eat, you know, maybe 2,200 calories on a training day where it might be a one hour or a a 90-minute session, so 2,200, if we look at what 20% of that is, that's 440, divide that by four, it's 110. So it might be 85 to 110 grams of carbohydrates per day. But if we're an endurance athlete that's then doing, you know, two or more hours of training, that could take that one or two days a week up to about 150 grams of carbohydrates on that day. So not every day of the week, but as a function of your training, and obviously how many calories you're burning because 20% is your goal, like 20% carbohydrates per day. So the percentage doesn't change, but clearly the grams of carbohydrates per day will change based on how long you're training for or if it's a rest day. So here's what, here's an interesting thing. I'm hearing numbers that are basically identical to what I'm doing what I have found is that sweet spot that we just talked about a little bit off air is that I try to get into that 110 to 130 grams of carbs per day. And this is where I'm starting to get lots of messages on Instagram from females that are saying what you're doing is dangerous for women, Taryn. And you're telling us that no, not necessarily. Oh, I don't see what's dangerous about a whole foods diet. Like the interesting thing, if you looked at it the other way, so if we reverse engineered this, if we thought, all right, so we know the food pyramid is hugely to blame for what's going on in the West health-wise, so these avoidable lifestyle diseases. So we know the food pyramid is too high in carbohydrate. Now, if we simply started with whole foods, so if we moved away from 
you know, refined carbohydrates that are in a packet or a box. And we looked at whole food carbohydrates like fruit and vegetables. If we were, you know, really understanding, okay, plants are the foundation for everyone, regardless of your dietary preference outside of our carnivore friends, of course, but we need to be starting with plants. Um, and we navigate our way through, you know, quality f- um, protein from a hormonal point of view that we also need healthy fats, then we will land way lower than 200 grams per day just naturally. So someone who's, you know, maybe feeling a little bit <laughs> angry or not, you know, not quite understanding what we're trying to achieve here with a whole foods diet, maybe don't try to eat to fit your macros just eat normally and then have a look at where you're at. It's going to be less than 200 grams a day when you're eating a whole food diet, especially when, you know, you're sticking to what we would nearly always recommend as like no more than two serves of fruit a day. It's really only when you start to go a little bit crazy on the fruit that your whole foods diet would become too high carbohydrate. So then you know, we mentioned Stacey Sims, and of course, she's a she's a PhD environmental exercise physiologist and a nutrition scientist. Why then does she say what she says, which is that this is way too low, not healthy, not good? Well, is she talking about keto or have you had specifics around the grams per day? Because that's where I think a lot of the detail gets left out. It gets we you know, like, so that even this week I got sent a research paper around um, how low carb is um, detrimental to bone density in runners, right? But when you actually looked at the study, the macronutrient split was very low carbohydrate, like 5 to 10%. The protein was about the same and the fats were super high by contrast at about 75 or 85, 80%. So that's not the same diet. That is not the same food on one's plate. So we really have to make sure we're understanding, firstly, if it is literature that we're looking at, what has been prescribed, so what percentage of our carbohydrates, proteins, and fats were precisely examined in that specific study, and then also food quality because, Taryn, you and I have spoken about this off-air a lot. Anything can fit your macros. Like there's a whole movement that's called If It Fits Your Macros, that, com- that could completely regard disregard food quality. So a study that simply says, you know, 10% carb, 20% protein, 70% fat is very different when we're actually looking at what foods we're eating. So a lot of fiber to feed the microbiome. Obviously, the literature around fiber and health is crystal clear you know, looking at protein quality. So that in itself, like of your 20% protein, where is it coming from? Is it coming from soy protein isolate or is it coming from pasture-raised eggs? And then fats even more so. Is 70% of your fat coming from vegetable oil like canola oil? Or are you looking at beautiful anti-inflammatory fats like our omega-3s like olive oil or oily fish? Like we've got to unpack the studies and really run a fine-tooth comb through them before extrapolating the data to a whole food diet that is purely driven by quality and very different from a a macronutrient profile. So then you mentioned the word keto, and I I want to go there because that, you know, again, is such a 
uh, controversial word. Um, mm. And actually, Taryn just uh, you reminded me that his mom tried keto and it backfired <laughs> horrendously for her. I think talking about food quality and uh, specific choices around that is probably where that is from. But then talk to us about keto um, and because, you know, people confuse low carb or lower carb healthy fat and keto. They think that's all the same thing. So then talk to us about keto for women. Yeah, like I, I think you're right in what you say. They People do think it's the same thing, right? And that's where it's really tricky because there is, there isn't a fixed definition at the moment. So there isn't even a fixed macronutrient definition. So that's how we can see these um, these conversations become far too extrapolated rather than us understanding the details. So keto, I mean, look, if we were to look at it at the end of the spectrum, so it, it would be, you know, very low carbohydrate. So some people prescribe 25 grams of carbs a day. Maybe it's about 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. So it's in that range depending on usually the individual. So if there is some significant chronic long-term, you know, metabolic syndrome, obesity, type 2 diabetes, then, then it's much lower. It's towards that 25 grams of carbohydrates per day. That's not really our point, but it is – the bottom end of the spectrum when it comes to carbohydrates. And then we can go all the way towards the other end, which is what we would look at for low-carb healthy fat or lower-carbohydrate healthy fat, where for, for most people the maximum is about 150 grams of carbs per day. I would say that's where most females would sit comfortably. Of course, you need to work out what's right for you. Um, the definition of LCHF can go as high as 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. So see how there's a lot of differences in what we're actually talking about because that is actually a scale where someone could be doing 25 grams of carbs a day and believing it to be exactly the same as 200 grams of carbs per day, not to mention the differences in food quality that could be across that entire spectrum. So then let's, for a second, ignore the food quality as issue. And um, mm -hmm. a lot, you know, there are women now, because you can buy them so readily, you know, buy the keto strips from the store and test their urine to see if they are in ketosis and they're trying to stay in ketosis. Is that a good or bad idea? And I, I will just add on to that by saying, you know, there's there's a lot of women who will do it, lose a bunch of weight really quickly. They're so excited. It works for me. I feel amazing. Um but on the other end of it, you're hearing women who do it for too long, or at least I have heard from women who do it for too long, and it starts to backfire and things like you talk about menstrual cycles start to get a little wonky and people are not putting two and two together. What What is your feeling on actually women being in ketosis? So that's a huge question. So let's break it down into a few parts. So keto strips is, or they are basically designed, well, they were initially designed for diabetics, right? So the actual function of those sticks is to measure the ketones in the urine, which, yes, tells your body you're in ketosis. But you don't have to be eating 25 grams of carbs a day to be producing ketones. Every time you burn fat, a byproduct is a ketone. So if you are burning fat 
and eating 200 grams of carbs per day, you are still producing ketones. It just depends on how efficient you are and certainly usually how long you've been doing it for because you get efficient over time. The, the What people forget about when it comes to those keto strips is if the ketones are in your urine, they're actually not being utilized by the body. So usually it looks like this. Initially, you drop your carbs and over this time of like four to seven days, your body switches gears. So you go from sugar burning to fat burning. Because you're still not very efficient at that point in time, you're losing a lot of ketones in your urine. So you'll get a positive reading on those sticks. If and when you stick at it and continue your dietary intervention beyond seven days, you get more efficient. So the ketones are then burnt for fuel. They are no longer in your urine. So you can do a keto stick and get a negative reading and freak out thinking that it hasn't worked or you've, you know, quote unquote, you've, you know, kicked yourself out of keto. But that's actually largely incorrect. Like outside of stress and changes to the dietary intervention, a negative reading, reading on the keto stick can actually show you that you're using those ketone, ketones, which is what you want, right? Even just, just using one example of beta-hydroxybutyrate, the sort of probably more well-known ketone, if you're burning that for energy, that's when you're starting to feel really good. So you've passed through that first phase, which a lot of people call a keto flu or we say it's the metabolic gray zone, and that's when you feel like you've got you know, control over your appetite and your cravings, increased mental clarity. You start to maybe even notice decreased inflammation because ketones by nature are anti-inflammatory. So that's the first part, right? But for, again, your as a female, your menstrual cycle is your monthly report card. So if you notice any changes in your menstrual cycle, then don't wait for another couple of months before you acknowledge that flashing red light. Dive in deeper to either education, the literature, getting a little bit of outside support and tweak what you're doing. It usually means that one, your carbs are too low and or two, your healthy fats are not high enough (laughs) Three, there's stress, which is driving up your blood glucose levels via cortisol. Or, you know, four, it's basically a combination of the above plus gut gut dysbiosis or some other illness like adrenal dysfunction that you haven't yet unpacked. But before I get sort of too far ahead, it doesn't mean that a whole food, lower carbohydrate diet isn't for you, but it's like the version that you've started with perhaps isn't quite right. I don't think it means that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater though and start being super high carb and perpetuating that sugar burning metabolism that we are trying so hard to move away from. So can I ask a, a question here? I I heard a podcast once with Dominique D'Agostino, who is one of the more well-known keto researchers, huge proponent of it for a number of factors has done a lot of keto testing on himself, a lot of publications, and even he, who is a huge proponent of being in ketosis and ketones just as a molecule that is really helpful to your body, even he says 
that being in ketosis is really only good for about a third of the population. Now, just my Canadian math says, all right, well, half the population is female. So theoretically, and what he says is it on average works best and better for younger overweight men. So I'm just kind of doing rough math here and wondering like, is the question not, all right, well, lower carb only works for men, doesn't work for women. Is the question more, well, there's a higher proportion of men that will do better on ketosis than women. And there will be more women out there that have an experience like my mom where their monthly report card doesn't come in. I'm trying to think of a classy way for a guy to say this. Their monthly report card doesn't come in with a good, it fails. (laughs) How about that? How about that? (laughs) That was That's safe. Yeah. Uh, It fails. And it's something that has to be much more um, uh, kept in check, much more closely, closely watched over for females than males. Is that more the question that that the Stacy Sim followers of the world are are worried about? That's a really good question. Um, I, I don't even think that I have the answer for that. In that of that third, if you know, because I, I love Dom Diagostino, he is definitely the expert in the field. Of that third, um, we probably we probably yet haven't understood. Does it just not suit some men as well? That's not really what we're talking about. But I think what it's worthwhile doing is circling back to when you were asking me more about macronutrients and we worked out that range for females where it could be 85 grams a day, maybe 110 grams of carbohydrates and potentially up to 150 grams. So that is probably a little bit too generic when we look at an entire month for a female. So if you'll allow me to, I'll break down um, a menstrual cycle so we can think about how we might be different in the first half of the month versus the second half of the month because this is where it can be a lot more nuanced for a female. So very top level, but we have two very distinct phases of a month, right? So phase one is our follicular phase. Some people call it the low hormone phase, but essentially it's from day one, which is the day that you bleed, to roughly the middle of the month when you ovulate. So this is where progesterone remains quite low. The second half of the cycle is luteal phase, and that's from ovulation to the end of the cycle. And we call that the high hormone phase. So if we break down those two halves, in the follicular phase, women usually feel their best. That's where if you've got a coach who programs you as a female athlete, will put more of your key sessions, more of your efforts, obviously periodized, but you're doing a lot more of those key sessions, certainly before ovulation. Then in the high hormone phase, that's where you should be programming lower intensity, more rest days, 
really starting to work with how you're feeling. And many people, many women, <laughs> um, need to start to take a few more days off in the lead up to their period arriving. So maybe it's three or four days. Now, our requirements, our energy requirements are also quite different for, for, the, for the halves of the month. So you might find, and most women do find, that LCHF feels like a better fit for them in that first phase, in that follicular phase. They might then find towards ovulation or bang on the middle of the month, they need to have more carbohydrates. And I'll come back to what that looks like in a minute. But then in that true second half of the cycle, they might need slightly more again. So maybe more days at 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. And every female has a really different cycle. Um, so there's obviously iterations of that, but that's a, like a top level view. And so if you do a more traditional LCHF template for the first two weeks of the month around ovulation, you might need to add more resistant starch, so more cooked and cooled sweet potato or, you know, oatmeal if that's your thing or white potato or basmati rice. And then maybe towards the um, onset of your period again, you might increase your carbs with a little bit more fruit. It's still not high carb. It's still not refined carbohydrates. But definitely for females, it's acknowledging how we work with that month because we do have essentially four seasons in a month, but there is definitely those two distinct phases where our nutrition and our training should look quite different. I'm fascinated by this. This, <laughs> is, this is actually the first that I've heard it broken down so straightforward. He's making a lot of faces, Steph. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I made a couple of faces there. <laughs> so and then... It, Go ahead. Go on. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, like, and then if we look into the, the the start of the cycle, like from a training and nutrition perspective, yes, our period is our monthly report card, but it, it also is for so many other reasons in that what we don't really understand what's normal, right? So I talk to all my female clients about their menstrual cycle and almost none of them really know what their cycle should look like. I think that's a lot to do with the fact that our generation have largely been suggested the pill when anything's been a little bit outside the norm. That's not to say that everyone's taking the pill, but if we've ever had an issue, whether it was a heavy period or pain at ovulation or quite significant premenstrual syndrome in the lead up to our period arriving, we've pretty much only had a band-aid of a pharmaceutical intervention offered. And that hijacks your cycle. It actually takes your natural hormones offline and the bleed is not a period. It's a withdrawal bleed from that pharmaceutical intervention. So what I'm, uh, what we're talking about doesn't apply to someone who's on the pill, just to make sure that we set that expectation because your cycle is, you know, is the pharmaceutical intervention. It's not actually your hormones. But for those that are having any of the symptoms like the heavy bleed or the ovulation pain mid-month or the PMS, that can obviously really impact your training. So you're probably really loving that you're hearing, okay, I can do less at this time. I can switch some of my sessions around. And I think that's very important. But I also don't think it's normal to be suffering. You know, when you are in balance, when you're ticking all your boxes from a nutrition, a training, and a lifestyle point of view, 
your period should pretty much arrive without you knowing about it and you shouldn't be suffering and you certainly shouldn't have lots of PMS in the three to four days or even longer to your period arriving. So it kind of goes both ways. Like, yes, definitely change your training, change your nutrition, work with your hormones and learn about your menstrual cycle. But also do more if there's a lot of an imbalance. You shouldn't have to suffer. Um, And if you are, it's a red light that something needs to change. I'm so glad that you talked about that because, you know, not many women actually know that. Most women think PMS, cramps, acne, all that is normal because that's what we've been taught by the society and it isn't at all. So I'm um, super glad you said that. Now, here's another question um, that sort of take the next step of question that I wanted to ask. Where does fasting come into play with any of this? Because again, that's another thing that we hear two completely mm. different things. Fasting, yeah, go ahead. It's great. On the other hand, no, it's awful for women. Don't do it. Never do it. Whether that be, a, you know, a, a daily eating window, so-called intermittent fasting, longer fasts, whatever the case, uh, and that fasting will negatively affect your cycle, your menstrual cycle, et cetera. So let's get into the the fasting conversation then. Yeah. So I think it's important that we have some definitions, right? Because fasting well, you know, if we even take a step back, um, everyone fasts. <laughs> like, firstly, everyone fasts overnight, right? So fasting by itself is not dangerous. We all fast. It's normal from when you finish eating of an evening to when you wake up the next day and put some food in your mouth or even some calories in your mouth is still a fast. So we really have to be careful as to how dramatic we get over this word. Just because people on YouTube are doing ridiculous, like either water only or unsupervised complete fast doesn't mean that the word fasting is evil. And that's, I can hear my voice start to raise, obviously <laughs> pisses me off because we need to define what, we talk, what we're talking about, right? Firstly, what is the definition of fasting? So we all fast. It's completely normal. Then there's been the popularity around 16-8. So let's unpack the, that first. So the 16-8 is a really popular protocol where you fast for 16 hours and you eat in an eight-hour window. So that has become really popular and I think that suits men. I think most men can do that quite well. I never get my female athletes to do a lot of 16-8 for reasons like their hormonal support, how different their month looks, you know, from the first half to the second half. But I still think that telling someone to eat when they're not hungry is losing that ability to eat intuitively. So we can't assume that every female needs to eat at 7 a.m. Like, you know, we, we can't put every single female in the same box because there's going to be so much individual variation within that group. And I think that's important to look at. Then if we look at the literature, when we're looking at fasting, you know, are we looking at people who are fat adapted? You know, anyone who tries to fast who isn't fat adapted is going to find it really challenging because your appetite or your body is bound by eating if that's what you've trained it to always do, right? So I don't think fasting is where we start. Where we start is whole foods, balancing our blood sugar, managing inflammation, you know, all of which is created by the previous, 
and setting up some, you know, this beautiful foundation in what we do day to day. If we then notice that we feel good when we have a slightly later breakfast or a slightly earlier dinner or a combination of the above, then that's just the next step in our fasting. It doesn't need to be 16-8. It might look like a, you know, a 13-11 with a 13-hour fast and an 11-hour eating window. So we're still talking day to day. There's lots of different ways that can work as a function of that adaptation of your body getting better and more efficient at selecting our anti-inflammatory fuel. Then when it comes to training, it can look quite different, but we still need to acknowledge that anyone who's not fat adapted that's starting to do faster training is going to find that really hard. You know, Taryn, obviously you're a male, but I'm sure you can relate to when you first start how there really is that adaptation phase. So the same thing applies to females. I rarely get my athletes to do zero calories, so no um, calories prior to a fasted session. Um, a lot of people feel like first thing in the morning they don't have an appetite. Um, they certainly don't want to get up 90 minutes or two hours prior to a session. Um so something like an MCT coffee or an MCT decaf coffee can work really well for them and that might give them 200 calories. It's liquid so it's easy to digest so it's not giving us any of that digestive stress which solid food in the gut can do when the blood flow is directed inwards rather than outwards and it means that we're still getting some beautiful fat-burning benefits out of our training but it's not zero calories or stressful for the body then the final thing is well what is faster training what is the definition of that you know there are people on the internet who think that they can do faster training for five hours which I completely disagree with when you first start you might do 60 minutes and that might be enough for you for, for until the end of time but you might also find that 90 minutes serves you well over time but it's a process that you take quite slowly there is no need to rush um, and, you know, I definitely think try both. If you're doing a lot of aerobic training, it makes intuitive sense to not need carbohydrates before training because aerobic sessions are fueled on the fat oxidation system. But if you're doing more high-intensity sessions, then many people, males included, feel better with some carbohydrate combined with some fats for blood glucose control before a high-intensity session. So see how we need definitions. We also need to talk about durations, intensity, and those more specifics between individual women, not just women as a whole. So speaking specifically about fasted training, personally, my experience is that if I do a session completely fasted and don't eat a lot during, I can be ravenous after like that's a, a real nail in the coffin with my hunger that you and I are trying to work through. And again, well, I'll say this, this phrase that you like that I've picked up when you look at the literature, <laughs> there, there isn't a lot of evidence showing that outright empty stomach, no calorie fasted training has any benefit beyond just carb fasted training. So when I look at myself and I say, all right, I know that there is detrimental effects to outright fasted training and 
just carb fasted training doesn't really have uh, um it isn't any worse than outright fasted training so in that case i always err on the side of starting even low intensity workouts with some calories in my stomach now that said i know that females have a much higher likelihood of having hormonal issues with outright fasted training so my take on things has always been i know that there's a negative side effect and a chance for a negative occurrence with outright fasted training for even men and it's even more likely for women so i i have just always kind of said you know what i don't think women should even try to play that game of chicken with fasted training for the potential for maybe an additional benefit Mm. i didn't really have a question Uh, i don't know no, that's okay. I understand what you're saying. And then I think we need to come back to the menstrual cycle. You know, if we're looking at, say, day three of our cycle where testosterone starts to increase, we naturally start to feel quite good, quite motivated. At the same time, estrogen increases. And that's a pretty, you know, solid recipe for good training. So you might feel like you can do so, some fasted training there with some calories, obviously, again, defining what fast it is and not trying to be too extreme with how long you go. Like it doesn't need to be to even two hours. And then if your, if your hormones don't um, feel like if you don't feel that great with ovulation, like if there are such big shifts for you personally and you feel more flat mid-month, then change it up. And then in that luteal phase, again, when you've got that decline of the hormones, so decline of estrogen and progesterone, if you're feeling like you're suffering, obviously do something about it longer term, but don't add more into the picture. Like don't feel like you have to do the same thing at the start of the month as you do at the back end of the month. And I think that's where this conversation, you know, it's not discussed enough. So we tend to look for black and white rules many triathletes are also quite extreme in nature and we forget that we can manipulate and experiment with guidelines instead of rules and also for females specifically one have a goal of balancing our hormones so there's a lot less of the um, shifts across the month beyond what is a normal hormonal fluctuation and then adapt our nutrition and our training to suit Okay, I have about 52 questions lined up here. Um, we, we have about six minutes. <laughs> right, I know. Steph's got to go. Okay, so actually... Uh, we'll need a part two. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with this quickly. So I'll just use myself as an example then. I eat when I'm hungry and, and only when I'm hungry. I And I guess I have a fairly short eating window. Most days I'm not really hungry for anything until 10 or 11 in the morning. We eat dinner around six or seven. I don't ever eat after dinner. So And I don't snack. So I have a short Mm. eating window and I don't eat a ton in my eating window. I only eat when I really feel hungry. Am I doing it wrong or, and, and keeping in mind too, I am not an endurance athlete. Um, you do occasionally exercise in the morning before you've eaten. Right. Um, but Taryn has sort of said that, that that seems to be a bad idea. So am I doing it wrong? Because I think a lot of women kind of do what I do, or maybe they don't, I don't know. What's your mental cycle like? It's good. (laughs) basically 
I rest my case, Your Honor. Okay. <laughs> All right. So then we've got great. We've gotten that there, out of the way. Five minutes. Right. Still left. I have another question though. So we've talked about. No, I mean, there's more to that, obviously, Kim. We're yeah. outside, like you know what your health looks like and what your blood tests look like and what your gut looks like, of course. But again, your menstrual cycle is a really great monthly report card. And mm-hmm. I was doing sixteen eight seven days a week, and I lost my cycle. What an idiot! But I learned the hard way, you know. So for me, that was a really interesting experience to then, all right, let's pair it back. Let's work out how to get the best of both worlds and track your cycle. So get an app, have a look at how you feel in that first phase, that, you know, that follicular phase, check in with symptoms at ovulation, check in with how you're feeling in your luteal phase, like learn about your cycle. Like most women don't do this. They don't even know when they're, oh, what, I do. what ovulation is. I've like, got all the apps. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we only have a couple minutes. So I do want to ask you this other question. We've talked about low carb. We've talked about macros. We've talked about fasting. Do calories come into play here at all? Because calories are, you know, something women obsess about. Should women, and, and I guess because we're appealing to a triathlon triathlon audience, um, female triathletes or women in general, should we be worrying about calories then on any level? Well, yeah, you can still eat too much. Mm-hmm. But I said to you before, on a rest day, we might be having 1,700 calories and on a one-hour training day, it might be 2,200 for a lot of women, especially anyone that's tried our, our, our archaic 1,200-calorie weight loss approaches, that freaks them out to no end. Even here, those numbers feels like a weight gain, you know, because of that very outdated calorie-in, calorie-out model. So we need to understand how much we're eating because our macros are a percentage of that. So you can't say 20% carbohydrate if you don't know how much you're eating. So I like to work with those percentages because then it gives you a varying degree of grams per day because 20% of 1,700 is 85. And as we worked out, 20% of 2,200 calories is 110 grams of carbs per day. So we still need to know how much we're eating. But like you've experienced firsthand, Kim, and most people experience is when you get the balance right, when quality is your focus, when you've got good blood sugar control, which is a function of plants, proteins, healthy fats, you naturally work out where your calories land. You're not hungry. You're not counting. You're not restrictive. Your body works out what you need. And that's because you focused on quality and you're not eating carbs that spike your blood sugar and determine your ongoing food choices. It's like physiology 101 when we look at what carbs do to our blood sugar. Like Taryn, you know that firsthand and anyone who's ever um, – like either used a continual blood glucose monitor or just tapped in with how they feel after a massive bowl of pasta will know how different you feel. And and food has the largest influence on our blood glucose levels. Does this, is it different for endurance athletes versus women who focus, say, strictly on weight training? In terms of what calories? No, just in terms of all of this. Does it, it does this stay the same if women are doing endurance training versus if they are they strictly do weight, uh, like weight training? Well, it's a function of intensity. So it really depends on what their weight training looks like. So I think we need to define the type of exercise that we do by heart rate because that determines what energy system we're using, yeah? So weight training, especially if we're talking about heavy lifting, um, there would potentially be more carbohydrates in that week because of the heart rate response to that kind of a lift. So that woman, let's say if she she might start on 20% 
carbohydrates, but on a training day, that 110 grams doesn't feel like quite enough. I'm open to someone going up to 25% carbohydrate, 20% protein and adjusting their fats accordingly, um, but it still will fit in an LCHF template. It's still lower than 200 grams per day, um, but it's just that they might have more carbohydrates more frequently than an endurance athlete who's doing mostly aerobic, so low-intensity sessions. Oh. This is <laughs> we could go and go and go stuff. and go. We could go and go. I I have a question that I think is an entire other podcast, maybe a book idea for mm-hmm. you that I'm sure knowing you, you're probably thinking about. <laughs> probably already writing it. Because I'm I'm fascinated watching what you're cooking for your daughter who's just starting to eat solid food. And I'm sure you're thinking about developing a healthy tummy and microbiota <laughs> for her. I think that needs to be another podcast because I'm looking at it, I'm like, ooh. Did Steph put together those overnight oats for her to to develop (laughs) good, healthy (laughs) infant tummy? (laughs) I was thinking that. So that I think that's a talk for another day. Um, But I, yeah, I think this was a great chat to understand that as you and I chatted on on your show just before we we started on this podcast, that it isn't as black and white. Nothing with nutrition is as black and white as everyone who's male should be keto, everyone who's female should be high carb, vice versa, whatever it is, we have to look at the individual. And specifically with what you've done with me, that's what we've started fine tuning. That's how we're going to get my stomach healthy and get this LCHF approach really highly functioning for me. So this is great. Thanks, Steph. Always great. Yeah. Awesome. There's so much we could cover like time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'd love to keep the conversation going and look forward to talking to you guys again soon. So where should uh, people follow you if they want to tap into your wealth of knowledge? And uh, clearly you have a wealth of knowledge. Where where do you want people to go to find you and, and start to get some of these nuggets for themselves? Yeah, thank you so much. I hang out on Instagram at The Natural Nutritionist um, and then my website, thenaturalnutritionist.com.au and you can find all the links on how to reach out to me there and other social media platforms. So, yeah, come and say hi and let me know if you have any questions and I'm sure we can make a part two because there's always so much more we could cover. Awesome. Thanks, Steph. Thank you, Steph. Thank you for listening. If you are a regular listener of this show, obviously you're into it. You don't need to share it with a friend or anything like that, but a review on iTunes helps us rank higher so more Trainiacs can find us and hear us. And if you have made it this far into the show, you're clearly into some good triathlon audio experiences. So we've put together a free audio mini course that you can get by going to triathlonterran.com forward slash triathlon keys. All you have to do is put in your email address and you'll get the free mini course series where I talk about the only three scientifically proven factors that have consistently shown up in study after study that play a major role in successful triathlon performances. And the info of what those key things are will surprise you. It sure surprised me. It's not previous history as an athlete. It's not max bike power. It's not even the amount of training done each week. I was really surprised when I found out what these three factors are as they kept popping up across all these studies that I found. 
In the audio course, Taryn will explain what these factors are, what most people think will result in good triathlon performances, but actually are a waste of time, and how you can change your training to set yourself up for the best race possible. So go to triathlonterran.com forward slash triathlon keys and check it out. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.